Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Daisy Cousins Presents. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I am thrilled to be right here on ADH-TV every week, twice a week, and boy, do we have a lovely show for you tonight. Now, femininity is a commodity much maligned in this day and age. While mid-20th century feminism most certainly paved the way for women to have the same professional opportunities as men and the same financial freedom, it did come at a price. That price, among other things, was the immense pressure that feminists put other women under to essentially be men, to work the same hours and the same jobs as men, to view relationships and sex the same way that men do, to dress and speak the same as men. Femininity was perceived as somehow weak, childish, and inferior to masculinity. Now, the irony of the fact it was feminism, a movement that is supposedly for women, that demonized femininity never escapes me. Now, to a degree, I understand why these feminists felt they had to embody male characteristics to succeed in the workforce. After all, they were having to prove they could do the same things men could do. No wonder they eschewed their womanhood. However, the problem with encouraging women to eschew femininity is that it has left a lot of women, I think, lacking a sense of identity. On the one hand, they feel pressure from pop culture feminists to do the girl boss thing, wear the corporate suits, work the long hours, and so on. But on the other hand, they feel that inevitable tick-tock of their biological clocks, which is perfectly fine and normal, but feel guilty about it because feminist dogma has been drummed into them from a young age, decreeing that in order to be a happy woman, you have to emulate being a man, which naturally does not include taking time out to bear and raise children. This attitude also takes a toll on relationships with so many young women terrified of being subservient to men by showing the slightest hint of a feminine instinct, they treat anything feminine with suspicion. As you can imagine, that puts a real stumbling block in men's and women's romantic interactions with each other, since men, on average, are instinctive providers whose natural masculine instinct leads them towards protecting and supporting the women they care about. 
This isn't patriarchal or paternalistic, it's simply how a lot of men express their love. And for women, understanding that is key to understanding men. But nowadays, so much of that gets shunted aside by modern feminists as sexist, so intent are they on turning women into men. Surely you can't be a powerful woman while you're being feminine or womanly. My guest this evening would dispute that to the end of time, and she has the body of work to prove it. She has been helping women navigate romantic relationships and their lives generally for decades with her wonderful enterprise, Fascinating Womanhood, a series of books that teach women that by embracing their natural feminine power, they can not only lead a rich and fulfilling life, but also ensure a deep, long-term romantic relationship with the man that they love. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to present to you tonight the wonderfully wise, the gloriously gracious, the fearlessly feminine, the incomparable Dixie and Lynn Forsyth. Dixie, it is just wonderful to have you here this evening. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And thank you for that kind introduction. That was something. <laughs> well, I meant all of it. It is, it is so great to have you here. I've been so looking forward um, to this chat because you and I, um, as, as you know, we have a, a very similar philosophy on life um, when it comes to women and it comes yes. to femininity. And you've been on the fascinating womanhood journey, well, arguably since before you were born, when your wonderful mother, Helen Andelin, published the first version of the book back in 1963. Mm -hmm. How has that journey shaped your life? Well, it's, um, you know how it is when you grow up in a family, you think that the way your family lives is the way everyone lives. So I thought that Fascinating Womanhood was the way all girls thought about, about everything, about men, about the way they dress, about everything. I thought that was normal. Mm, so it, it must have... So it's, 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 pardon me, yeah, it's, it's shaped my life totally. And then, of course, I went to school and found out that it didn't work exactly like that with some people. And that must have been quite jarring, I'd, I'd imagine, was it to come from, you know, a household that really embraced femininity and, and so-called, fem, you know, feminine wives, uh, feminine wiles. Um, was it, uh, did you find it odd seeing how, how other girls live their lives and what they were taught in their family life? Yes, and, and you have to realize I grew up during uh, second wave feminism, which was all the, uh, some of it was, was good. It was needed equal pay for equal work. And some of it was needed. There were no stalking laws before second wave feminism. But the problem is, is that they went way too far. They they started acting like who needs men. And, and that was the burn your bra era. And there was all kinds of stuff that women were doing that, uh, just didn't work very good and it certainly didn't make women happy so uh, so that's what what i was went through school in was the second wave feminism so and my mother was quite active then in pushing back against it and she and the big feminist of her day betty friedan she didn't like my mother at all <laughs> <laughs> yes and betty friedan was 
An interesting one, I can imagine she didn't like your mother at all. And correct me if I'm wrong, Betty Friedan would have been on the bandwagon that the differences between men and women were socialised rather than, you know, mostly innate or, or biological. Is that correct? Yeah, and she had a really terrible relationship with her husband and she did not like men. And you could tell in the way she spoke, which... I feel bad for her because, you know, she had a really awful marriage. I don't know what her husband was like, but um, it was it was just really painful. And so she became very bitter and wrote this big, thick book and, uh, and, and The Feminine Mystique, and it really influenced a lot of women. It was sad because my mother did the opposite. She was saying, in order to be happy, you need to embrace your femininity. And, you know, we may have talked before, I don't remember, there was a Harvard study, an 80-year Harvard study that was done. And of course, it was over 80 years. In fact, John F. Kennedy was in the very first batch of people that they were running through it. And um, the whole goal was to find out what makes people happy. And at the end of all this time, they followed a lot of people. First, it was just men, and then they added women to it. They did health checkups on them. They followed everything in their life. And what they found after all that time was that the thing that makes people happy is the quality of their relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what Fascinating Womanhood is all about because the most, the most important relationship you ever have is the one, with the one that you love. And that's what we want to be enduring. Exactly. And what a fascinating study. And I, I have to agree with that. I mean, you can be the wealthiest person in the world, the most successful person in the world. But if, if the relationships you like uh, in your life are either um, unhealthy or lacking, well, that's a recipe for um, unhappiness, I think. So it, it is such an interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, and it's just that that study I believe is still going on. They're they're following these different, and some of them have died, of course. But um, the, what makes people happy is relationships. So people always go after wealth and fame, and and success and these kinds of things, which is not like those things are bad, but they're not the things that bring you enduring happiness. And so, if if when uh, feminism, what they were trying to do is, I think everybody really wants to be happy. They really want what we're what we're teaching. They may just not know how to go about it. But doesn't everybody want uh, to be in love with somebody that lasts for your whole life? That's what it, it, the being in love and staying in love is the ultimate to me in happiness. If you can get that, and some people don't think it's possible, but it, it is. Mm. And and that's a God. That's a, a rather controversial thing to say nowadays in in feminist popular culture. That you know what can make you most happy is being in love and staying in love. You know people would put that down to to patriarchy, but I I, I do think you're correct. And in terms of relationships and falling in love and staying in love, the the fascinating womanhood books uh, they talk about cultivating feminine power. Uh, what are some of the principles of feminine power and how can women best cultivate them? You know, um, in my book, I use an example because everybody knows of this person, Cleopatra. Everybody mm -hmm. knows who that is. She's a great example of feminine power. And it's easier to, to 
to describe it by telling you about a person and how they used it. Now, you can use feminine power for manipulation and for, for personal gain, or you can use it with good principles and have good character, and then it'll be more lasting. Because if you if you use this these principles for selfishness, it'll work for a while, but eventually it'll wear thin. So with Cleopatra, she was a woman who uh, was, when she ruled Egypt, it was not at the height of its power at all. She was overshadowed by Rome. She had to kind of play political games with Rome. And she managed to win the love of two major uh, players in Rome. Um, uh, let's see, um, Mark Antony and Caesar. Mm. And she did it. She had to use her while. She lived in a very brutal time in history. But, you know, she she didn't use force. She didn't use armies. She used charm and she used her feminine skills. And she won the heart of these men uh, to the point that I didn't know this before I researched it. But did you know that when she went to Rome, um, she influenced Roman fashion for a hundred years after that. I didn't know and that. She was she was very influential. It wasn't just about her her love relationship with Caesar and Mark Antony. It was more than that. She was very influential, and you can see in that story she didn't she didn't do it through brute force. Mm. She didn't through it, do it through typical. What the, okay, the way men usually use power, we call it masculine powers. They use either. Um, either uh, money, they'll try to negotiate, or convincing, or brute force, like in the military or police or things like that. They negotiate. And uh, and they they do that kind of thing. And if you'll notice, that kind of power is okay, and it's very strong, but it's devoid of relationships. It's mm. just task. It's just a thing. And it's valuable, but the kind of power that women can have even more than men, because it's more natural in us, is the influence that we, where we influence people that can last like Cleopatra over a hundred years later. Your influence over the people you love, over people that you influence, can last long after your death. Whereas uh, if you run a company, they may forget about you by the next generation. Mm. Does yeah. that make sense? It makes sense. So when we sense, talk yeah. about women's, women's power, Women, and everybody knows this intuitively about female power. Have you ever heard people say, well, women really rule this or really rule that? And then you'll hear <laughs> feminists say women have no power. Of course they do. Of course they do. It, it, the, 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 the woman behind the man and, and all that stuff, there's incredible influence in women um, towards men, especially the men that they care about or that the men care about them. And we can we can use it in the workplace. We can use it in our families. But like I said, if you use your feminine power for manipulation, it'll work for a while, but it'll wear very thin and it won't last. Mm. So use use the feminine power for good, not evil, as as the old saying goes. And and you mentioned then yeah, don't be selfish. No, don't be selfish. Exactly. And and you mentioned then. Um, mm -hmm. One of the uh, powers that women have is charm, and, and the book talks about feminine charm mm -hmm. in, in a very particular way. Um, can you outline feminine charm for us? Feminine charm is basically the idea that you want others to feel comfortable and to, and to feel good about themselves. That's the whole point of charm, not to get what you want, 
But to, to, uh, when you're around a person, they like being around you. They like the way they feel when they're around you. And that's the goal. But now to do that and to do it well, you've got to be sincere. And you can, some women learn this as a technique. But in fascinating womanhood, we teach women it needs to be sincere and it needs to be specific. Otherwise, people aren't that stupid. They'll figure out you're just using them. Mm. And then it'll go backwards for you. So, so when, when you're charming, everybody loves to be around a charming person. Everybody does, whether it's male or female. The difference with women is that women tend to be more relationship-oriented or, or a sensitive to relationships. And that's why we have a greater um, innate power base to mm-hmm. tap into that quicker than men. So men are really charming, but it's, it's more natural for women because of their interest in relationships. Yeah, so the your women then, because of their interest in relationships and people, I mean, I'm reminded of the phrase, women are interested in people and men are interested in things. Um, do you think that women, because mm. of that, are better able to read at face value what makes other people comfortable and therefore tap into that? Generally, yeah. Like mm. men, men can be charming. I, I'm going to use this um, because... It's just such a good example. You know, politics. I always say, I know you do a lot of politics uh, mm. stuff. Talk about it a lot. But you, but you know that everyone who is very successful in politics has to have good social skill or mm. they never get anywhere. Yeah. So you can you can you can become president or premier or whatever you're gonna gonna do, and you have to have social skill to get there. And but your social skill can be um, just to get your way which I think with politicians, a lot of time it's just to get advancement. But it is a, a skill. But with with women, more women, now there's a lot of corrupt women too, but more women can tap into it easier, particularly if they're sincere, because women are the main ones who had a, uh, charitable organizations. We do homeless things. And, and the women are generally, uh, as a group, more sensitive to the needs of human beings than men as a group. And I I find it so fascinating how that sort of developed over the course of human history. And, and, you know, on that topic, one subject in Fascinating Womanhood, uh, an assertion I found really interesting, is that while men are the builders, protectors and organisers of civilization, women are the gatekeepers of civilization. Can you tell us what you mean by women being the gatekeepers of civilization? Well, women are the ones who bear children. We're the only ones who have babies. We have wombs and we have babies. And the thing about women, the partly our bodies are set up to have babies, whether we ever have one or not. Women have, um, I can't remember the exact percentage if my husband Bob were here, he's got it down. It's women have better hearing and better, uh, um, I know better hearing, I think maybe better eyesight than men. Oh, that's interesting. Because we have to listen for babies in the night. And it, whether you ever have a baby or not, women are blessed with that. So what happens is women are the ones who don't tend to jump in the sack as quickly with just any guy as much as guys will. Let me give you an example. There was a study done a few years, it wasn't even that long ago. Uh, I don't know how people get funding for these things, but, (laughs) but they do. A group went on these college campuses and they sent a beautiful woman onto the college campus to see how quickly she could get a man to agree to sleep with her. Oh, wow. How long it would take? This is a complete stranger. 
Okay, do you know what the average was? No, what was the average? For Amanda, agree to sleep with 30 seconds. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> my heavens. Okay, they tried, the re- <laughs> they tried the reverse. They tried doing it with a handsome man on a college campuses to get uh, women to sleep with them. And women were more like, are you kidding? I don't know you. <laughs> You're not going to use my body if I don't even know it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's just we we are the gatekeepers because we're the ones who basically, unless we're raped or things like that, we decide when babies are going to be born. And, oh, and, yes. and we are the ones who put the brakes on and just say, oh, no, you don't. I'm not doing that. And that was just, I mean, that was kind of extreme, but that was a true study. Wow. I'm mind blown. I'm mind blown about that. I mean, I had a feeling yeah. obviously that it would be, you know, less time for men because they're more kind of visual, but I didn't know it'd be only 30 seconds. Oh, wow. Well, women, women instinctively, I think without even consciously realize that if Okay, if if women have sex, there's a potential for a pregnancy. There's a potential for disease. There's mm. and when women have a baby, they have the responsibility, even if they decide to have an abortion. That's their responsibility. Women take more responsibility in childbearing. They just do. So they they're more a little more selective in who they're going to let use their body. So women are the gatekeepers. If if um, what we've learned that is if there's a nation whose women are largely corrupt, there's no hope for the men. And oh. not that men are brutes or awful, but men tend needing uh, to need more civilizing. Women civilize men when they're good. When they're bad, then it's really bad. But women have a civilizing effect on men. That's interesting. And, and I- we're trying to cultivate this in women. Yeah. Yeah, and that's interesting. And later on in the interview, actually, I'd I'd like to um, discuss that with you on sort of the the um, the term of masculine pride, for instance, um, because it it mm-hmm. is an interesting assertion that you make, and we'll we'll definitely explore that further later in the interview. And look, now um, I want to read you one of my favorite passages from Fascinating Womanhood. So this is what you wrote. Uh, Though femininity is sometimes thought of as weakness, when it is directed towards masculinity, the slightest brush with it tends to make a man feel more vulnerable. Men recognize feminine influence more than they might admit. They have mixed feelings about it. Part of it delights them, but another part scares them because they feel defenseless. It disarms them, but they will enjoy it immensely when you have their trust. Now, Dixie, for all, say, the single girls out there, and also for married women or women in relationships, is that, you know, an example of advising women not to try to be men in relationships because you'll have a much greater um, response from your men if you embrace your feminine charm? If you embrace your femininity, for sure. I'll give you a couple of examples of that. It's easier with examples for people to get it, I think. Yeah. So there's this woman that I know. She's one of our one of our ladies, and she's a, she's a prosecuting attorney. Mm. And she this was uh, a couple of years ago. She wrote to us and said uh, that she, well, she's in the UK, so she wears the little the little wig thing. Yeah. Uh, do they do that in Australia? They do, don't they? Yeah, yeah, we do. Okay, so you know all about that. So when she dresses to go to court, she has to wear the robes and the whole bit. 
but she's very feminine. And she said that she always wears um, a skirt under that robe and mm. she always wears short heels and she has really long hair. And uh, she said that the other uh, the other attorneys that she has to spar with uh, kind of tease her about being <laughs> so feminine. And so she, <laughs> she asked me what she should do about it. And I told her, uh, I talked to my husband about this too. And uh, he said, she should play it up. The reason that they're nervous and not nervous, they tease her is because they're uncomfortable with her femininity. In other words, if they attack her in court and she's feminine, they feel like a cat. If she acts more like them, they feel more on a par. So they're uncomfortable just intuitively going after her because she has to prosecute murderers all the time. Mm. And she has defense attorneys and she has to spar with these. And they're usually men. And so they, they're more comfortable if she acts like them. Here's, here's another example. This is, kind of, this is kind of a hot button for people because some people hate Donald Trump, as you've noticed. No. Uh, anyway, we like him, the, we like the him election, on this channel. <laughs> okay, okay. During the uh, last the election where he uh, sparred with Hillary Clinton, mm. that one, I heard him say in an interview that when he... Um, when he debated with her on camera, he said, "If when a woman acts like a woman, I will treat her like a woman with respect. But he said, if she doesn't, I'll treat her just like I do any other guy. And I thought, you know, if Hillary Clinton was listening to that and had any idea what that gave the advantage that could give her, he couldn't have attacked her the way he did on camera. He'd look like a he looked like a bully, mm. but he didn't because she acted like him. She pounded her fists on the table and did all these masculine kind of things. So he felt comfortable treating her like any other guy. Now, that doesn't give her an advantage because the problem is she isn't a man. So she doesn't come off as a man. She comes off as kind of a just a, a really unfeminine woman. She can't. She doesn't come off as a man at all. The mm. power that men have naturally that we don't. That is such, uh, and I hadn't thought of that, and you're exactly right. That example of Hillary Clinton is so fascinating because she, Dixie, mm -hmm. is an ex really an example of a woman who has tried to emulate being a man like during her career. And like to some extent you can think, well, maybe she had to because she's of a particular generation. But she, she took it to such a point that she sort of... Um, I remember my mother commenting once that Hillary Clinton reminded her, her so much of a man. This this is years ago, um, and I've I've always said um, that I reckon the first female president of the United States will be a Republican woman because a Republican woman won't do the gender politics. And also, if you look at Republican women, they tend to be very feminine, even much more so than Hillary Clinton, even the politicians. So she will, I think, allow herself to be feminine. So do you think in politics, maybe being more feminine is actually an advantage for women rather than a disadvantage? Absolutely. And women don't get it. They don't understand feminine power or the power of it. And you and you 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 can be fake, but it doesn't work to your benefit to be fake because people will figure it out. You can't keep it up long enough. That's the problem with, with fakeness. Plus, it's just not a wise thing to do. But Hillary Clinton, when your mother said she reminds me of a man, but she didn't mistake her for a man. So she was just would be just a really, a really unfeminine woman. 
are a really weird man. And she doesn't fit in either category. And it's a shame that women try that because why not play to your strengths mm. instead of to your weaknesses? You're not a man. Mm. So you're not going to, you're not going to come off well as one. Yeah. And um, I, I just find in my life, men really, in, and even platonically, they don't respond well in the workplace, I find, to women trying to be men. There's something, it just, it, it's like it doesn't compute in, in their heads and they get defensive and they, they get angry. Um, I, I've, I've found as a, you know, a woman in the workplace, it's, it's much more conducive to act like a woman, be innately feminine, in, and, and I, I just am quite feminine, and, and charming, and don't try to play mm -hmm. the patriarch. Always always try to play the matriarch. I find it is good, good advice for women. Don't try to be fathered. Being mother is, if, you know, platonically is, is much better. Yeah, and it's even, it's even more complicated than that because women, if men are treated like that, they tend to like, whatever. But women get hurt. Mm. And they get angry when they're treated like a man. They don't. We don't really like it. Mm. So uh, you can't have it both ways. So why not play to your strengths? It's just that women don't understand. If feminists knew or understood the power of femininity, they wouldn't try so hard to be like men. Mm. I think. I think you're they, absolutely they, right. They use what they were. Yeah. Mm. But yes. Yeah, so can continue. Mm. Sorry, Dixie. What were you saying? No, no, that's uh, that's mainly it. That, that I keep trying to express this to women, and it's so difficult because we've had like a couple of generations of women that that have had this feminism. Some of which, like I said, has been necessary. It's been good. There's been, uh, you know, there. Do you know there weren't even before uh, second wave feminism there were a, a, um, police didn't even go into houses where there was domestic abuse because they figured it was between a husband and wife. Oh. I mean, some of this stuff had to change, mm. but they went way too far. Mm. They went way too far and, and basically acted like we want men to be under subjugation to us, but we don't really, because we have no respect for men who do that. Mm. We yeah. still need masculine men who can protect us. What we need is men who are dangerous, but the dangerous in them is under control because they're good men with character. Mm. They control it. That's what you want. That's what women crave. It's like a hero who doesn't just isn't just off the rails and just does crazy things. A guy who has a potential to be dangerous, but it's under control. Mm. Yes, and that's that's I guess what you'd call healthy masculinity. And um, Look, Dixie, yeah. um, speaking of, of healthy masculinity, I've been really looking forward to talking to you about this. There's a, a fascinating discussion in chapters 9 and 10 of Fascinating Womanhood about the differences between male and female brains. And it's drawn from a study that your, your wonderful husband, Dr. Robert D. Forsyth, PhD, uh, put together, and he's a licensed and practicing um, neuropsychologist. And the research showed that the female mm -hmm. brain, mm -hmm. yes, um, there in the female brain, there's more of a connection between the upper right and left portions, which allows for them to work together in a more natural and efficient way, whereas men tend to enjoy greater connectivity within each side of the upper brain, especially from the front to back. Now, how do these differences in our brains influence men and women's behaviour? Well, for one thing, you talked about women's brains first. Um, there's you know, when, when, you know, women tend to be so verbal. Yes. Um, 
we're obviously verbal creatures. One of the reasons we're able to do that is because of this brain connectivity between the right and left. So you you think of things, you can get feelings and stuff on the right side of your brain, but in order to put it into words, to actual words, it's got to go to the other side, to the left side, which is verbal. And so women have real, a nice wide roadway going between the two. And so if you ask most men, men are not all identical, but if you ask most men, how do you feel about this or that? Sometimes it takes them a minute to, to have to figure out how they feel. It's more like they have feelings, but to translate it into verbal words takes them a minute. And with women, it's like, just say it, just mm. say it, just say how you feel. How do you not know how you feel? Men being connected front to back are more visual. They're more visually oriented and task oriented. And to, to try and say that we are the same is complete nonsense. It, it doesn't work and it's just, it's just not true. So women can understand men better when you understand the verbal the different ways that we think and our greater connectivity between the two parts of our right and left portions of our brain. And mm. then we won't get so frustrated with men mm. because they can't do it. That, not, not as quickly. They can do it, but yeah. It, it just takes a little a little while. And I, like it, it's so fascinating that you say that, Dixie. And I, I loved reading those two chapters because I think most women, um, whether they're in a relationship or not, will relate to the story of, say, a, a man coming home after work, whether it's a husband or a father or a brother or whatever, and he's had a hard day and he's just quiet. And he's in that sort of little man place. And if you do the instinctive thing that women do, which is go my darling, what's wrong? He'll either refuse to talk or snap. Is that an example? Like if you were going to advise women, would you say that's an example of men just not quite being able to transfer those signals across and then maybe lashing out because they're frustrated? Yeah, partly, but partly a lot of times men process things in their head. And whereas, uh, Boy, I'm not that good at that. I, I like to verbalize it. If I'm really upset or verbal or, uh, or even excited, I want to talk to somebody. Whereas a lot of times men, they go into kind of like like their cave. Mm. Some people say they, they have a man cave, which is a physical thing. But a lot of men just go into a part of their mind. It's kind of within them. And they go in there and they process things that have happened in the day. And if they're interrupted in that sort of virtual cave, sometimes they can kind of snap like a bear who's hibernating. And, and you need, you need to, you can ask them, hey, is this a good time to talk? The other thing is that they, men can verbalize their feelings, but it is exhausting for them. So if a woman wants to say to a man, let's talk about our relationship and talk about feelings, they can do it, but they don't, they don't get relieved doing it <laughs> like we do. They, it's exhausting for them. So if you're sensitive to that and realize that, that can really help you in understanding him because you're more relationship-oriented. You tend to be more sensitive to the relationship. Women also will notice some little thing, oh, he snapped at me today. Is there something wrong with our relationship? Where men, a lot of times, won't notice there's anything wrong until you're, you're saying, are you kidding me? We have all these problems. Gosh, it is so interesting because I, I just think so many women um, can relate to this. So Dixie, on a, a practical level, what advice would you give to a woman, say, whose husband um, comes home in that kind of 
mental man cave? What, what would you, how would you suggest she handle that situation? Well, you know, it depends on the guy. Some guys come home and they're hungry or tired, something very basic like that. And you can learn to recognize if this is somebody you're married to or dating and, or engaged to, you can learn to tell. If he's hungry, feed him. And it's, it's surprising how much his mood will raise if mm. he's been at work all day. Give him, prepare some snack that he likes. Or if he might be tired, give him a chance to look at his phone or do whatever he does to kind of decompress. But you can learn to recognize this and recognize that men, they're just built different than we are. That he, He'll talk to you, but give him a chance to kind of you know what and men when they're hungry or tired don't even often realize it it's not always <laughs> conscious they're just like like what like you when you give them something they're like oh they don't they, they haven't connected that either they just kind of know they're just not totally feeling okay mm. but they don't know why because they haven't focused on it because men tend to be so much more task oriented than women. Women can be task oriented. We have to be, but we're more often relationship oriented where that comes first. Where's the relationship at? Mm. Wow. And, and so I guess the best, uh, a really great way then to manage your own relationship is to recognize, isn't it, that men are more task oriented and you as a woman are more relationship oriented. So lean into that that natural instinct wouldn't you say because that that's how you can make your relationship really healthy yeah. well okay in my situation i've been married a long time and i know that when bob comes home he likes to look through the mail mm. I, we don't talk about it. i just notice it he likes to look through the mail and if i talk about if it's really important I, of course i can talk about it but even if i do unless it's an emergency he'll try to look at the mail and talk to me which he isn't good at multitasking <laughs> like we are so it'll sort of be like mhm mm mhm mm which can also be frustrating so i've learned to let him go through this mail for a few minutes and then say hey can we talk about uh the guy that cuts our lawn, we have a problem or something like that. We can, we can talk about whatever it is or something that happened. Now, if it's an emergency, that's perfectly fine, but I've learned how he is and you can learn how your man is too. The mm -hmm. same way, just, just watch him. Is he, does he always come home hungry? If he does, great, make a snack mm -hmm. and he'll, he'll love you for something that's simple. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's, it's so not lovely. hard. It, it takes it, it takes understanding men and what you can do to help your particular man. Mm. And that's why women are so civilizing on good women. There's really some lousy ones that we we know, too. So. Yes, we, we do know. And, and look, speaking of women having a civilizing um, influence, as I mentioned earlier, we were going to discuss, you know, masculine pride. Can you um, give me an outline of how it is that women civilize their men and how also they can understand men's masculine pride. Well, okay, here's an example. Um, all of us have seen, have seen, have you ever seen a riot on television? There's yeah. a lot of them lately. Yeah. <laughs> Demonstrations, riots where people just kind of are going crazy and yelling and screaming and throwing things. Okay. If you look at that crowd, um, if you look at more of the crowd, who's in that crowd? They're usually young, unmarried men. I researched this for my first book. Hmm. And the reason is, is that young, unmarried men don't risk much. 
then go out and go crazy. But when, when studies have shown that when men are married, or maybe they have a child, but even if they're married, they tend to think, oh, I have a job. Let's see, I don't want to risk this. I don't want to risk that. And they tend, that's more civilized. And you don't see a lot of old people out there doing it either. They're mostly young, unmarried men. And that's why, because they, they risk it. Women have a civilizing effect on men. We, and it's not by something like, I'm going to civilize my man, because that's a little too manipulative. It's, it's kind of like being his mother. And not too many men want to marry their mother. No. Not the one you want. No. And <laughs> any of us really want. So we do it by our influence, by, um, by, what, by our belief in them by our um, looking to their best side, by us um, complimenting uh, their, not just their masculinity, but men love to be uh, complimented for competency. Men crave uh, being recognized for competency. You did that so well. How did you do that? Or you're right. That's absolutely right. So those kinds of things that we do, particularly on a consistent basis, have a civilizing effect on men. And by the um, by the reverse, women can also really um, have an uncivilizing effect on men too, corrupt women. Mm. And you know men can do it too, but because women are in that position of being more sensitive to relationships, we have because of our sensitivity, we have the power to do something quicker and first before it's too late. Mm-hmm. Men, a lot of times, by the time they realize their marriage needs to be saved, if if she's decided it's over, it's usually it's usually too late. Mm. That's uh, very interesting. Um, men will hang in there long on average. Yeah, men will hang in there longer because they kind of don't. Oh, really? Was that a problem? <laughs> 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 was that you know? I mean, seriously, the things I get, the 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 questions I get, uh, women actually hanging in there when their husbands have cheated on them, I think, wow, you're really amazing to stick with this guy mm. um, that long. But she she's writing him because she's saying, what do I do? What do I do? This is not going to work. I don't like this. This can't happen. So what do I do? Uh, men aren't writing to us asking about that. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It is, it is just so fascinating. Um, and Dixie, look, speaking of husbands, you have a wonderful husband, um, who I mentioned before, your wonderful husband, Bob, and he has a, a really big mm. role in Fascinating Womanhood too. He's a consultant for the Fascinating Womanhood enterprise. Um, and also, I love this, he makes regular appearances um, in the wonderful instructional videos on your Instagram page. And I actually have one here for us to look at. So let's, let's play the clip. <laughs> I had quite a long day at work today. Oh, you poor thing. Tell me about it. Well, everybody showed up, and that's great, but it makes for a long day. Yeah. And I think I need a break. Okay, that sounds good. Let me just finish throwing together these cookies, and we'll spend some time together. I love your cookies. They are absolutely amazing. Bob? Uh-huh. Yeah, I was wondering, the dentist called today, and we need to make new appointments. Remember that problem we had last time? we got to figure this out. You know, I'm changing this light bulb. Just give me a minute. All right, grumpy pants. (laughs) 
I love, I love that clip. It is, it is so, and there are everyone, you should all follow Dixie on, on Instagram because there are so many wonderful clips like that there. And every time, Dixie, you both look like you have so much fun together. I mean, I mean do, do you enjoy, oh, probably a stupid question, but do you enjoy working with each other in that way? Oh, I, I really do. I, I'm so crazy about him. The thing is, though, those the ones that are, that are negative about him are really hard for me to do because I never do that in our real relationship. And so when I have to pretend that I'm kind of off in a huff, it's totally <laughs> fake. It's hard for me to do it. It's hard for me to treat him like that. And some of the ladies say, I'm treating him like that. And I'm like, it's, it's just fake to show them the example. But mm. yeah. He, he really helps me a, a lot, and he's, he's supportive of everything I do. And he gives good psychological advice. Mm. Well, I'd imagine he does, and certainly um, that study he conducted about male and female brains, um, like, really, everyone needs to read Fascinating Womanhood, men and women, because I think it's actually just helpful for both genders to work out how the other one thinks. Dixie Adeline Forsyth, this well, has you been... Know, um, I'm no, no, continue, continue. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go well, ahead. Well, just that he, when, when he first t told me about some of this studies about the brain, he told me not to include it in my book because it was too scientific. And I said, it's helped me so much. I have to do it. Mm. So we, we did kind of a, a kind of a um, toned down, not too intellectual version of it for the ladies because it's helped me so much. Mm. Well, I, I found it really helpful reading it, absolutely. And it, can, it confirmed a lot of the things that I've, I've suspected for a long time, actually, about, about women, men and women and how different we are. Dixie, this has been the most delightful and enlightening um, interview. Thank you so much uh, for coming on and talking to us. I'm sure there are a lot of women in the audience who are thinking, wow, I've got to, I've got to get a hold of this, this book. So please tell us, where can we find you online and where can people buy Fascinating okay. Womanhood? Okay, we are on simple, www.fascinatingwomanhood.com or amazon.com. You can also connect with us on Instagram, which is uh, Fascinating Womanhood, at Fascinating Womanhood, or YouTube at Dixie and Bob, which is what it is, or TikTok at Fascinating Womanhood. We're on TikTok is one you get a lot of, a lot of scary stuff on there. So I don't look on it too much, but mm. some of our ladies do. <laughs> Well, Dixie Andlin Forsyth, fantastic to talk to you. You have a lovely evening and take good care of yourself. Thank you, Daisy. Thank you. You're so charming. Oh, thank you. So are you. <laughs> Well, we've talked a lot about marriages and relationships tonight. We've discussed how fantastic it is when you're with that one person who embodies the metaphor of your other half and how hugely it adds to your life. And certainly, I love being married. I do not know what I would do without my husband. He is the light of my life and my existence has been so much easier and more complete since meeting him. Not because of some patriarchal paternalism, but because Simply, he's the right person for me. We complement each other, and I'm very, very grateful to have that in my life. As a married person, I believe in marriage, although needless to say, it should not be entered into lightly. However, marriage isn't for everyone. And one particular Australian feminist who I discussed with the wonderful Dean Wells on this program last week 
has made her views known on that with a new book. The book by Clementine Ford is called I Don't, The Case Against Marriage, and was released only last week. Now, I haven't read it yet, but I ordered my copy and I can confirm it has arrived, so I will be reading it soon. And while I can't yet comment on the substance of the book, I will leave that for another day, I can comment on the principle of the book, especially as Clementine outlined it during an interview with Channel 10's The Project last week. Here are some of the reasons Clementine gives as to why we apparently need to cancel marriage. My biggest issue with marriage is that I think that it's a fundamentally flawed institution that is built on the oppression of women. I mean, it's pretty big issue, uh, but also that it's, it's presented to people now as something that it never has been, which is something that we need in order to have happiness and love. Love marriage is only about 200 years old, so the idea that somehow marriage is an essential thing that will elevate our life to something better is historically wrong, and I think that we would be much better as people focusing on how to make ourselves happy and how to live in accordance with our own values rather than thinking, well, I need to be married in order to be somebody in the world. Now, I hate to say it, but Clementine has never been married, which makes me wonder why she thinks she can assert with such authority that marriage is so terrible when she hasn't experienced it for herself. And that is evident in the fact her reasons centre on old third-wave feminist culture war talking points that I would hazard a guess most people agree with anyway, rather than personal experience or any kind of cutting-edge thinking. Yes, marriage is a flawed institution that's built on the oppression of women. We know. That's why marriage has evolved over the course of the last hundred or so years, at least in Western society, to empower women within the institution of marriage in a way they've never been empowered before. Dixie just spoke about it when she talked about how nowadays the police will go into households when there's domestic violence involved as opposed to pre-feminist days when they didn't. Marriage has changed, and certainly for the better. So the arguments Clementine makes are the furthest thing from groundbreaking, but that is what a lot of third-wave feminists do. They rehash ancient battles because they've run out of things to complain about. Hence the fact Clementine insists that someone somewhere is telling women that they need to be married in order to be someone in the world. Now, that might have been true 30, 40, 50 years ago, but committed monogamous relationships have been out of vogue in Western societies for quite some time now, facilitated by hookup apps like Tinder and, well, the internet generally. Where? Are these alleged cultural forces insisting we should all be married in order to be someone? Certainly, it doesn't seem that marriage is at the forefront of the minds of a lot of today's young women. However, it's these comments from Clementine that got me thinking, maybe she's just been talking to the wrong crowd about marriage. And one of the chief complaints a lot of women have about their husbands is that they don't really feel like their husbands see them. All they are is kind of like a glorified all-in-one appliance for them. So the harm I would say that marriage can do to men and that patriarchy equips marriage to do to men is to not see the subjectivity of women, to not see that women have these full and complete lives outside of them. Which
Now, it sounds to me like the problem there is the individuals involved, not the institution of marriage. Perhaps those women are married to crappy men. Or perhaps if they applied a few of the strategies outlined by Dixie Andelin Forsyth in Fascinating Womanhood, those women would find a better way of communicating with their husbands, which would enable both parties to see each other better. Nevertheless, it is true marriage is not for everyone, and I'm sure Clementine makes an interesting case against it. I am intrigued to read her book and find out. Honestly, we could leave it here if it weren't for these comments Clementine made right at the end of the interview. The interesting thing about it is that even as marriage declined, you have de facto relationships sort of took over. And a lot of the dynamics you're talking about in marriage exist in de facto relationships as well. So you can say, you know, why bother with the piece of paper? But then the flip side of that question is, well, what difference does the piece of paper ultimately make? It's a good question, Waleed. Well, maybe the plan is to go for de facto relationships next. <laughs> but, then, but if it's ultimately the same thing... Oh, you mean that's your next book? <laughs> oh, sorry, I, yeah. I missed that. Well, well, my, my goal is to really get women to see something bigger and better for themselves than just being someone's partner or wife, which is not to say that you can't have happiness in that. But I think that we... You know, a lot of women watching this will resonate with the idea that they have been presented with marriage or de facto relationships, whatever, however you want to call that kind of relationship as being the be-all and end-all. It's like Adrienne Rich says that heterosexual romance for women is presented as the great adventure. And I want them to think about something else that brings them adventure. So this isn't just about marriage then. It's about women's heterosexual romantic relationships with men. That's what it appears Clementine really wants to put a stop to, at least from those comments. And if that is the case, what does Clementine propose heterosexual women do instead of marriage or de facto relationships when they truly, truly love a man? Should they shun him in order to die on the hill of feminist principle? Should they never engage in a relationship with a man beyond casual sex, again, because of feminist principle? Should they forever deny themselves the genuine happiness that comes with finding that one right person and making that, that commitment to marry them because of some feminist principle? I guess we'll have to read Clementine's next book to find out, won't we? Well, that's all from me tonight. Tune in again next week for more of the world's most fascinating creative people. Thank you to everyone who made this evening's show possible. Up next is the great Alan Jones. Good night, world. I'll see you soon.